Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us share the word of God as we find it written back in the Old Testament, in the 122nd Psalm, the sixth verse. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Good morning, dear friends in Christ Jesus. This is a beautiful Sunday in July, and I hope that all of us are happy to be here in God's house in order to worship him. You have heard me say that today is the fourth Sunday after Trinity. You and I, when we have looked on our calendars, also say today is also the 4th of July. When we hear 4th of July mentioned, I'm sure that we as Americans and as Christians, we say to ourselves, that brings back this date, July the 4th, 1776. And that means that today our nation is celebrating its 195th birthday. We may say to ourselves as citizens and as Christians of this beloved country, does the word of God have a message for a nation when it celebrates its birthday? And I'm sure that as we turn to God's word that it does. And I have just read from the word of God from the Old Testament. We find the psalmist talking about the fact that he was invited by his friends to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the capital of his nation, and he was invited to go there with friends, and also there was located the temple. And he said, I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet shall stand within thy gates, O Jerusalem. He was thrilled to pieces in order to go to the capital city and to the temple. And as they went, then we are told that he said to those who were with him, he says, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let's pray for the peace of our nation. When do I say today on this 195th birthday, uh, what is God's message to us? The psalmist and the word of God, he calls to you and to me as American Christians, pray for the peace. Oh, pray, I plead with you, pray and ask God to take care of the peace, the welfare, the goodness, the well-being of your nation. And you may say to me today, preacher, well, that sounds good, but what good does prayer do? You mean to stand up today in this 20th century and to tell us that it does some good to pray for our nation uh, just because the psalmist in the word of God, he said, pray for the peace, for the well-being of Jerusalem. You mean to say that prayer does any good? You may say, what good are pious words with perhaps a nasal twang? What good does it do? You may say, preacher, this is the 20th century. Tell it as it is. What good does it do to pray for our nation? But on this, the 195th birthday of your beloved land and mine, the word of God and the psalmist call, pray. Keep on praying for the peace, for the well-being of your nation. And all because we have every assurance that when we pray for the good and the welfare of our nation, it does change things. It does do some good. It brings about results that you and I could never dream of. You may say, preacher, you have to prove that. Let's see. And together as we turn to the word of God on the promises there, let's ask ourselves, when we pray for the peace, for the welfare of our nation, what does it mean? 
We may say to ourselves, how does it change things? How does it do good for this nation in which you and I live? And let's know in the first place that when you and I pray for the peace, the well-being, the good of our nation, that it means this, that we thank God for the privilege of religious liberty which you and I enjoy in this beloved land. We could come to church this morning. This is the kind of a land we have. And sometimes we forget when we think about the Declaration of Independence, when in the course of human events, and when we think about the Constitution, we, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, we sometimes forget the background. We say, why did our forefathers come to the New World? And behind it, one of the great and supreme things was this, that they might worship God according to the dictates of their conscience. If you and I have ever been in Rome and been in the catacombs there, we know what the early century Christians had to endure. They had to go underground because they were not permitted by law to worship God and to worship their Lord Jesus Christ, and so they went underground. You and I have the privilege, and we thank God this morning as we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, we pray for the peace of our nation. Thank God that we've got the privilege of assembling ourselves, of coming into God's house and hearing the glorious message of Jesus Christ, that God's Son loved you and me so much that he came out of the ivory palaces and came into this world and became a human being born of the Virgin Mary for you and me, and he died, God died for you and me that in that sacrifice on Calvary, you and I might be forgiven our sins, delivered from an eternity in hell and assured of eternal life. This is the privilege that we have in this nation. And you may say, when we thank God and we pray, oh, that's more than just a couple of pious words with a nasal twang. When we thank God for those blessings, then what? You and I, as American Christians, we stand as reminders to this nation that the greatest gift of all is the gift of Jesus Christ and life and salvation in him. You and I can never dream of how much good that means when American Christians stand to remind the people of this world Jesus Christ and life and salvation in him. This is the greatest gift. Who can measure its good? We say to ourselves, you say, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for the peace of this nation. What good does it do, preacher? Tell it like it is. What good does prayer do in the 20th century? Just a couple of pious words and phrases with a nasal twang. Oh, no. When you and I pray for the peace of this nation, it means that we pray to God and we ask him for courage that we may witness for Jesus Christ. Oh, we could spend the rest of the morning saying all the things that are wrong with this nation. We can say, why is it, oh, man's inhumanity to man? And we talk about man's hostility and the names that we call one another. It's either whitey or blacky or it's white trash or it's nigger or it's sheeny or it's dago or it's a wop. And we say to ourselves, what, what's wrong? And poverty, and you could add it all up. And those are only symptoms. They are only syndromes. They're symptoms of a terrible disease. And that disease is what the human heart, the human heart, when General Douglas MacArthur was asked what's wrong and what ails the world, he said it's not of the flesh, but it's of the spirit. And when you and I ask God in prayer for this nation, we have the courage to go out and say, here's Jesus Christ. He alone changes human hearts. He is the one that transforms life. There's the trouble inside. Man is hopelessly sinful. And because man comes into the world, 
with hearts that are filled with hatred and violence towards his fellow man. There's got to be a regeneration. There's got to be a new birth. And when you and I go out and we testify to that, then you say, what good does that do when we pray and ask God for courage? Who can measure it? Who could ever dream what it does? Because it means that there will be followers who will allow Christ to come into their hearts and transform their lives. And then they will look at others as being equal before the cross of Jesus Christ and being alike precious. When Charles Evans Hughes, who was the Chief Justice of the United States, joined the church one Sunday, there was a black man alongside of him. And Charles Evans Hughes turned and he said, The ground before the cross is level. When you and I as Christians, when we as American citizens, when we can say to ourselves, Christ has transformed me, and therefore, standing at the cross, every man is equal in the sight of God, and every man is just as precious as I am. Who can measure the good? Oh, we say to ourselves, what good's a prayer? What good are a few pious words with a nasal twang? The psalmist says, pray for the peace, for the good, the well-being, the welfare of Jerusalem. On this 195th birthday of this beloved nation today, We'll call upon you, pray for this nation. What does it mean? Oh, it's more than a few pious words, to be sure. But when you and I pray for the good of this nation, it also means this, well, that we confess to God our guilt in the nation's sins, and we stop blaming it on to our forefathers and to those that preceded us. Oh, we can get pretty cynical at times, can't we? I've had people say to me, I didn't ask to be born and to come into this world. I wasn't asked whether I wanted to be born. I say, you listen, friend. No, but God caused you to be born. Don't forget that. You didn't ask, neither did I. And it's past time, isn't it, to say, look at the kind of world that's been handed us. May I say, friend, what kind of a world has been handed any of us? All that I know from childhood on is war, man's hostility and man's brutality. But God put you and me into this world. And it's about time that we stand and we say in our prayer when we pray for the wealth of the nation, God, begin with me. My heart is selfish. I'm filled with guilt. I've got race prejudice. I'm out after myself, the great perpendicular pronoun I. When we allow Jesus Christ then to come and to bring us to repentance and to forgiveness and we stop blaming those that have gone before, well, then what happens? Then there comes into your heart and mind Christian love, and that's the kind that is born of faith in Jesus Christ. It's the kind that looks at every man regardless of the color of his skin, whether he's white or black or yellow or whether he's brown, and we say, I love that man that I want him saved, and I'm going to treat him that way. You and I, that's what prayer means when we stand and we can pray like that and we say for our nation, any man that I need, I'm going to love him to heaven and I'm going to treat him in mercy and kindness and goodwill because I want him in eternity with Jesus Christ with me. And I challenge you, there isn't any problem. There are no syndromes, there are no diseases and illnesses and symptoms that can't be remedied by the panacea. When Jesus Christ starts in your life and mine, we say, this is the 195th birthday of our nation. We say, what, do you, what, do, what can we do about it? What does the word of God have to say? God, again, through his words, says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You pray for the welfare of your nation, for its good. 
We can be cynical and say, what good are a few pious phrases with a measles twang? Is that all it means? When we pray for the peace of our nation, it means this, that we stop offering God a two-bit prayer and expect a million-dollar blessing. What kind of prayers do you and I pray? Are they two-bit prayers? Is that all they are, just a bit of a pious phrase and a nice-sounding word with a nasal twang that it sounds so unctuous and it sounds so holy and so sacred? Where's the heart? When we turn to the Word of God, Jesus used to spend all night in prayer. When you see him in Gethsemane's garden, when he prayed so fervently that the, again, the sweat was drops of blood that fell from his face. There was, again, a perseverance. There was a holding on. What kind of a prayer do you and I pray? Just a few glib where Where's the heart? Where is the heart? Is it just a little two-bit, 25-cent prayer? We expect at least a million bucks in blessings. Is that the kind of praying that you and I are going to do for our nation? When are we going to stand before God and say it's going to come from the heart? It's going to come from one that is repented. Who shall stand in the holy hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And you and I approach the throne of grace and ask God's great blessing in Jesus Christ. And we hold on. I stood at the river Javan. There it was that Jacob wrestled with the angel of the Lord, with God himself. He said, hold on for dear life. I won't let you go until you bless me. You've got to forgive me. And he held on. The Lord Jesus forgave him, who was the Son of God, that special angel. You hold on. Remember when God came to visit Abraham? God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Did Abraham say, all right, that's all right, God? But he turned to God in prayer and he said, wait a minute, supposing God, there are 50 righteous people left in Sodom and Gomorrah, would you, would you save the city? And God said, yeah, I'll save them. And he said, but suppose there's only 45. Will you save the city of Sodom? God said, yes. But he kept on praying, supposing there's only 40, will you save the city? And God said, yes. And then he, supposing there's only 30, God, will you save the cities? God said, yes. And he kept on, supposing there's only 20. God said, I'll be. And he always said, God, forgive me. I'm coming back again. God, supposing there's only 10 righteous people in those cities, will you save them? God said, yes. I'll save them. When there were less than ten, Abraham fought for Sodom and Gomorrah in prayer. He wrestled with God. Because there weren't ten, God destroyed the cities. You and I say, what good does it do to wrestle with God in prayer and stop the two-bit prayers? Pray in Jesus' name and hold on for dear life. Why? It brings us assurance more than you and I can ever do. Why is America standing today? It's standing today because it's got some righteous people. That's why Sodom and Gomorrah would be standing if it had ten. And I say, what good does it do to prayer, preacher? This is the 20th century. What good does prayer do? Whether you believe it or whether you don't, that's up to you. But this great land stands because there are righteous people. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous person avails much, and don't you forget it. That's why it's standing. We talk about the birthday of this land that we love, and we are called upon to pray. We say, what good is prayer do? Oh, we can be so cynical, have a nasal twang, and stand up there in the pulpit and tell us to pray. What does it all mean? Prayer, does it do any good? Does it change things? Oh, yes. 
Because when you and I pray, it means this, that we thank God. We thank God sincerely for the care and the protection that we've enjoyed in this nation. What about the fact that this nation protects you and me? It's a nation of law and it's a nation of order, isn't it? Yes, we talk about the Bill of Rights, we talk about the amendments, again, we talk about liberty, but under law, as you and I know, your liberty stops at the end of my nose. My liberty stops at the end of your nose. It isn't that every man can do as he pleases. It's liberty under law. This is a nation of law and a nation of order. When we look out and we say, look at this lawlessness, look at, again, the disrespect for law and order. Look at those who can, who are law to themselves, who care nothing about the fact that this is a nation that stands under law. Our eastern district met in Washington, D.C. this year. One of our pastors was mugged, he was robbed, and his jaw was broken and almost killed right in daylight on the streets of Washington, D.C. We said, oh, what's happening? When you and I can pray and thank God that this is a nation of law and order, then what does it mean? It means that in your life and mine, we're going to see to it that we're going to be examples of those who are going to stand for law and for obedience to government. And I can't dream of what it means. We're going to have to set some examples. As Americans and as Christians, we're going to be very careful. We live within the law. This is a nation of law and order. There need to be some examples. Have you and I failed? Is this what's wrong? What ails this beloved land of ours? We talk about praying. Is it just simply a nasal twang with a couple of pious words? What about this thing of praying? Does it do any good? Let's bear this in mind that when you and I pray for the peace of Jerusalem and we pray again for its well-being of our nation, it means this, that we have the courage to bear witness of this, that a man's conscience, if it's going to be a reliable guide, is going to have to be enlightened by the word of God. Well, this thing of conscience, we're hearing a lot about it. Conscience is that knowledge of right and wrong that God wrote into the heart of our first parents, Adam and Eve. It's that knowledge that all of us have. We have a semblance. We have a dim knowledge of what is right and wrong. But, oh, it's so dim that it needs to be educated. It needs to be taught. It needs to be enlightened because conscience can be wrong. When you and I pray for our nation, we ask God, give us courage to tell a man your conscience is no better than its enlightenment. Have you been enlightened by the word of God that it has grown? But now it becomes an intelligible, a sure, a safe guide. We talk about war. People are saying, does a nation have the right to wage war? Can you be a Christian and go to war? When you read the word of God, Romans 13, Paul leaves no doubt that we are to be subject to, again, the higher powers government and that it bears not the sword in vain, that the government has the right the word of God does not forbid all killing, but it forbids all murdering. There's a difference. When the government can bear the sword in order to punish evildoers, when a nation's safety is in jeopardy and government has the right to use the sword, you can be a Christian, you can bear arms. But all this presents problems, doesn't it? We say to ourselves, how about the Pentagon Papers? Are we being deceived? Can you believe anybody? You and I think that we can live in a nation whereby there may not be some who may deceive us. 
we're going to be deceived. Have you and I forgotten, though, that when we stand before the bar of divine justice, you and I stand as individuals, and that we shall stand personally accountable to God? The nation has the right to bear arms, to be sure. When is a war justified? These are some of the problems. We say, how about my conscience? Can I just say no? When you go back to the early church when some of the disciples were placed in jail because they were preaching, they were told, you've got to stop preaching the name of Christ. If you don't, you're going to go to jail, you're going to be killed. Then it was that Peter said, we must obey God rather than man. Whenever a government tells you and me that I've got to shut up about Jesus Christ, in other words, that I've got to throw away my eternal life in him, that my eternal salvation is in jeopardy because of him, then the word of God says, now you obey God rather than man. And listen, when you and I as Christians, and we today pray for the peace of our nation enlightened by the word of God, we can stand as a testimony, and I do it today. In my life, I can testify to this nation. I've never been asked to do anything. It has jeopardized my eternal salvation in Jesus Christ. Have you? I have not. This to me is the genius. But I know this, my nation is so big that if any one of you listening right now would say that my conscience tells me war is wrong, my conscience tells me to kill under any circumstances wrong, you can be a conscientious objector and you tell the government and if your soul is in jeopardy and you say I would lose Christ, this government is big enough to exempt you from services. And some of you say, oh, Russia's so fine. I'd like to see you find a conscientious objector in Russia. When you find him, be sure and bring me a picture. You'll be shocked because the state is God there. Some of us think it's so wonderful. When I was in Jerusalem, I had two Arab boys pleading with me to bring them to America. We'll live in your home and we'll be servants so we don't expect any money. We'll wait on you if you just let us come to America. Rather strange, isn't it? And yet some of us, again, we like to sell this nation short. Praying for the peace that you give What does it mean? It means that we turn to God and we remind ourselves and we thank God for this promise that the only institution on earth that God has given his absolute security about that it's going to last till Christ comes again is the church. Not any one government. What does the word of God say? Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against my church. One institution I know is going on to the end, and there isn't anybody going to destroy it, and that's the church of Jesus Christ. You don't have that promise for any government in the world. Where are the governments of Assyria, and where are the Babylonians, and where are again the Medes and the Persians, and where are the great Greek government, where are the Roman legions, and where is the northern kingdom of Israel, where is the southern kingdom of those that have gone down, we have no promise that any nation, any government is going to stand, but we do have the promise of that again the church, the kingdom of God is going to continue. When you and I pray and thank God that the church is going to come through, then we're going to see to it that in our lives we are going to live moral lives. We are going to live pure lives so that God sees us who will live Christ. We'll continue to protect this nation and keep it from destruction what will keep it from being destroyed tomorrow. It isn't a big army or a big navy. It's the fact that there are Christians who are praying and who are showing their Christianity in lives of morality and impurity. Let's keep these homes together. Let's keep these children as God wants them to be kept. 
Let's live in the moral standards that God has given. The destiny of this nation depends upon it. Don't you ever tell me well, that prayer doesn't do any good. It doesn't change things. Prayer does more good than you and I could ever dream of. It means when you and I pray that we turn to God and we say to God, God, you have the ultimate, the last word as regards the destiny of this country. This nation stands, why? Because God's letting it stand. Why, it's here. You may say, oh, you're so naive, preacher. You mean to tell me that uh, God, because you sing about he's got the whole wide world in his hand, uh, you mean to tell me in this 20th century that this nation's saying, yeah, that, that's what I mean. Yeah, you can call me naive, and you can call me simple, and you can call me anything you want to call me. But I remember as I read back in the word of God that there was King Hezekiah, who was king of the southern kingdom. And I remember when Sennacherib came and surrounded the city and ready to destroy the nation. And poor Hezekiah had nothing, but he got down and prayed. And he called upon the people to pray that God would deliver them. And that night, God sent a plague, the word of God says, and 185,000 Assyrians were dead the next morning. Lying dead around the city of Jerusalem. I still believe he's running the show. The ultimate word, the last word, God Almighty is going to say. You say, how does that affect this nation? It affects this nation that you and I as Christians, we're going to keep on praying. We're going to pray like we've never prayed before for the welfare and the good of this beloved land. When we pray for the peace of Jerusalem, it also means that we pray for our sons and daughters in the armed services of our country. We pray for an end of hostilities in Vietnam. You know, we've been doing that every Sunday. You say, pray for our boys? Yes. Why? Because God says that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without his will. When we've got our own flesh and blood in the armed services, especially in places of danger, and we pray to God for them, you and I know this, that nothing will happen to them unless God allows it. If a sparrow doesn't fall without his permission, your son and daughter will not fall except he allows it. We've got this promise from him that if he allows it to come, he overrules it for their eternal good. We believe that. That means that as Christians, when we pray for our sons and daughters in the service, we pray for an end of this war because God can do all things that whatever happens in the providence of God we accept and we go on believing and we stand as living monuments in this nation that Christ is worthwhile, that God is worthwhile. I don't suppose you particularly noticed when the flags came in this morning. The Christian flag was carried by one of our deacons. I don't know if you noticed or not the American flag was not carried by one of our deacons. I shall not name him because he stands as a symbol. But the man that carried the American flag is the father of boy that was killed in Vietnam. At the second service, the American flag is going to be carried by a father whose son is missing in battle in Vietnam. 
I call these men for a purpose. And I ask them, would you carry the American flag in the service Sunday? Both of those men, they know the price of war. Came back immediately, yes. To be an honor. To be an honor. It means something. And men in our church who know what war means in their home. They all carry over the body. It's an honor. And though it was carried over there this morning. That's a sermon. That's saying something to this nation. In Jesus Christ, God, you don't make any mistakes. There's a great day coming. Whatever happens, to be saved and to be reunited with our loved ones, it will more than compensate for the worst that will come. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Oh, you and I as Americans and as Christians, we live under two flags. Oh, to God that we can pray for the welfare of our nation and know that it does do some good, that we can stand and we can face the Christian flag and we can say, I pledge allegiance to the Christian flag and to the church for which it stands, one Savior universal with life and salvation for all. So we can also stand as Americans and as Christians and face, oh, glory to you, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. We live under two flags. We ask God, oh, to, to preserve this nation. Francis Scott Key still asks an important question, he who wrote the Star Spangled Banner, he asked, oh, say, can you see by the dawn's early light what so proudly we hailed at the twilight's last evening? Can you still see in the dawn what we saw in the twilight last night? We say, what was it? Whose broad stripes and bright stars through the perilous fight or the ramparts we watched were so gallantly streaming it was old glory to fly? Can you still see it? And the rocket's red glare of the bombs bursting in air gave proof of the night that our flag was still there. And he asked, oh, say, does that star-spangled banner get waved or the land of the free and the home of the brave? Does it? 195 years old, your nation mine. Thomas says, pray. Pray like you've never prayed before. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray they shall prosper. Let love be. Let's pray that this nation under God, of the people, and by the people, and for the people, shall not perish in the earth. The peace of God which passeth all human understanding, keep and unite your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus unto life everlasting. Let us remain standing and let us turn to the flag. Let us sing the first stanza of the Star Spangled Banner. 